This is Rupert Sheldrake with Mark Vernon. This is a Science Set Free podcast, and Mark is going to start off. I wonder whether we could talk in this podcast about how science is, pre- is presented in science fiction, in popular science, um, when, in a way, wonder and amazement and awe is kind of used to to present the science. Um, and, you know, you so you might see a, a film on television about the cosmos and it's absolutely packed with gorgeous imagery and the production company have travelled the world to kind of get the right shot of a famous scientist, you know, on top of a mountain gazing at the heavens. Or I really, I re- recently went to see the film Interstellar um, and in the press there was a lot of discussion about the science of Interstellar, you know, what happens when you get close to a black hole and things like that. But the thing that struck me about the film was there was a deep sort of spirituality running through it. Um, there were these beings that live outside time, um, as there was this sense that um, supernatural happenings that uh, occur at the beginning of the film have a kind of, not exactly an explanation, but they're taken to be actually a sort of opening onto something that's way beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Um, and I just wonder whether you had this sense that sometimes um, these different versions of popular science, although they're presented as science, it's almost as if um, in spite of themselves, they can't help sort of open up onto something which really is sort of, in a way, beyond the science, whether it's through this aesthetic wonder and appreciation, or actually through a kind of sense that reality may be, um, you know, may break the bounds of science, even, even as science tries to explain it and understand it. I think that's the reason that these things are popular science or science fiction. I mean, in order to be popular science, they have to appeal to people. They want to get high ratings on television and that kind of thing. And people who make science fiction films like Interstellar want to get, you know, big audiences. So they have to make them attractive. And what makes things attractive, I think, is a sense of awe or wonder or beauty. Um, so ones about the cosmos have all these cosmic shots and views of galaxies. And you get this in planetarium displays too, where the popular science is what's on display at the planetarium. Um, they bring in a bit of the real science, as it were, but the popular science is the level at which it's operating, and it's and it's partly the 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 beauty and the wonder. The same with biology. If you have the most the most popular biology films on television, I suppose at David Attenborough's his various series about life on Earth and Blue Planet and so on. Over the years. He's been the master of this particular kind of, of, of film. And those two are ones with astonishing photography of amazing scenes of animals and plants and um, tropical environments or underwater scenery and so forth. Um, and those are popular because the imagery is so striking. Um, and the science within them is actually rather thin. I mean, I know more about the Attenborough ones than I do about the, the cosmology ones, because I'm being a biologist, that's closer to my own interests. But the kind of science that's going on if you read scientific journals in biology, there's almost no relation to these films. And open nature, and most of the papers on biology are about sequencing proteins, about genomes, um, uh, about ways of activating enzymes, um, about 
connectivity of different nerve cells within the brain and that kind of thing. They're focused down in, in kind of microscopic detail, um, uh, often mind-numbing detail. But there's no sense of this bigger picture or the beauty of nature. It doesn't come into science. It's considered irrelevant. Um, so when there are bits of biology in the David Attenborough films, they're not usually very pr- profound bits. I mean, they're more about ob- observations on migratory routes or mating habits of lyrebirds. Well, they are profound in the sense that they're saying what's there. But as soon as that gets into the regular academic biology mill, uh, that's just grist for the mill, where it's just a question of which genes are involved in this mating behavior. We can sequence the DNA of the lyrebirds and that kind of thing. All the things that really interest the viewer, all the beauty and stuff, disappears the minute this stuff enters a lab. And insofar as they relate to science, they relate to old-style natural history, which has the lowest possible status within contemporary biology. I suspect something similar happens with these astronomical and cosmological films, because most astronomers and cosmologists spend their time crunching numbers from the Hubble State Space Telescope and from various radio telescope arrays, and they're crunching data and working out mathematical models of quasars. And as I discovered when I was under a starry night sky with one of Britain's most eminent astronomers and asked him the name of a constellation, he said, oh, don't ask me, I'm just a radio astronomer. He, He had not only no knowledge of the night sky, but almost no interest in it. Um, and this is so different from the image which is there in popular science. It's very funny you should say that, because I went to a talk on astronomy just uh, recently, and um, part of my um, the reason I wanted to go is because um, it was outside and they'd set up some telescopes, and um, you know the, the highlight of the evening really was you know looking through the scope and seeing a, a star cluster and all that, and yet the person giving the talk didn't set up the telescopes because he too said he actually doesn't really know how to look in the night sky. The way he does his astronomy now is by booking time on the Hubble telescope and then he just kind of waits for the data to be delivered um, and never has to really leave his office. Um, And it was quite a thrill for him, I think, to actually look up in the night sky again and actually see a star. (laughs) He said that he'd done his astronomy, first of all, in the mid-1980s, which was about the last generation of astronomers that actually had to look through telescopes. And this doesn't really happen anymore. No, well, you see, it's true of biologists too. I mean, if you study biology now, when I was studying it at school, we had to dissect frogs and dogfish and rats and things. And dissection was a big part of it. I mean, a lot of people didn't like it particularly, but the thing is that you were dealing with real animals, admittedly dead animals, and you were learning about their anatomy. That's all been phased out. I mean, hardly any of that now. When people do biology at school. There's very, very little in terms of practical classes that involve living animals or plants, or even dead animals and plants. is much more molecular, and, you know, things in test tubes. So I think this general reductionist tendency of science, which has affected all the sciences, really, uh, takes one away from the direct experience of things. And I wonder whether there's a kind of split that goes on um, to use a bit of sort of maybe a sort of psycho- bit of psychology. So, for example, I was recently watching some films which Brian Cox, um, the cosmologist, um, made for 
and the BBC, and they were really beautifully filmed, uh, you know, programs. They were absolutely gorgeous. And yet, at the same time, Brian Cox kept telling us, you know, that we're looking at a dead universe with no meaning, um, nothing going on that can't be explained by some kind of me mechanical um, cause and effect process with a bit of quantum theory thrown in. Um, you know, and, and it was like it was like being pulled apart watching the programs because, on the one hand, you were absolutely ravished by this imagery, on the other hand, you were being told it was all meaningless. And I did come out feeling really, well, I felt sort of frustrated, but also it, it led me to wonder, you know, what is this doing um, to our perception, our engagement with the world, where in a way we've been invited to do one thing and then told that that's actually forbidden in a way at the same time. I think it's a very similar way in which television and media treat psychic phenomena. They know that most people are interested in psychic phenomena. And I, because I do research on telepathy and dogs and people and so on um, I've often been asked to take part in these TV shows um, I don't bother much more actually because the standard formula they've had for years is they get people who've been doing research on these shows I mean I spent years doing research and I talk about my research with dogs or cats or people or telephone telepathy or mothers and babies uh, because they often have a strong telepathic bond with e each other um, and that's what interests people. They show this research, um, and based on work that I or others have done over years. And then the standard formula is they then bring on a standard media skeptic who's given the last word and says, well, unfortunately, you know, people would love to believe this kind of thing, but uh, the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain, and basically these things are impossible, and what looks like convincing evidence must be flawed in some way. Uh, and then they say, huh, and they say, well, they, they can often say, well, we have, don't know the details, but we know it's flawed because this can't happen. So, so people are are attracted to the programs, all the advanced publicity draws people in because they know they're interested. And then what the program does is interest them, intrigue them, draw them in, and then deny it all. Yeah. And it's, I think it's the same formula. What attracts people is not denial and reductionistic science providing mind-numbing detail, which is what you get in most scientific journals. Uh, they're, draw they're drawn rightly to an interest in nature, the cosmos, how animals and plants actually grow and behave and, and so forth, what the powers of the human mind are, and people are intrigued by the things we don't yet understand. And yet the deal is always to say, okay, these are the things that are happening, but it's nothing but nerve cells or molecules or genes or whatever. Do you, I mean, do you think it's... Um What's 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 going on here? Do you think it's just genuinely disingenuous that it's people saying, "Well, draw them in with that sort of popular stuff, and then you know, clobber them with what we take to be the truth"? Or do you think there's a kind of we, even the people that make these programs or the scientists that go in for the popular science, are sort of half drawn towards it, but then pull back for fear of their reputations or something like that? Um, I, I wonder what's kind of going on. Well, I don't know. I think that the, the my own experience of the psychic programs is that very often the researchers who get interested in the program are genuinely interested and curious um, and get intrigued by the phenomena. But then their editors and producers and commissioning editors tell them, you know, this stuff, it's, you know, it's parapsychology, it's marginal, it's many people consider it pseudoscience, we've got to have a strong sceptical voice here, and here's a list of 
media skeptics that you can ring up and get one of them on it. And um, so I think it's that the, this they're trying to cover themselves in that case. Because if they made a pro-parapsychology program, the behalves of protest from the materialists and the militant atheists, uh, who'd say that they'd, they'd diminished the credibility of their TV channel or whatever. Um, so in that case, it's partly defensive on the point of view of the producers. When it comes to cosmology and natural history, I think the people who make these films are really interested in beautiful imagery and the camera stuff. I mean, I think they're genuinely interested in these beautiful images. But then they have to have it presented by a scientist. And any scientist who's going to get a mainstream presenter job on the BBC is someone who has to represent the mainstream scientific point of view, which is materialist and atheist, um, with possibly a little bit of sort of well, there may be other dimensions that science can't deal with or something, a little bit of that. But Brian Cox is perfect for that, you see. He's he's the ideal poster boy for materialist science. He's good-looking, he's a good stage presence, as it were. And uh, he's his own views on science are utterly banal, in my view. I mean, completely mainstream materialist um and so he toes the party line. Um, and so I think there is a double thing. If, if it was just dreary materialism, no one would watch the programme. So it has to be attractive. I wonder whether there's a, a bit of a, um, a third way, if you like, opening up in, the, in relation to ecology. I was wondering about ecology then when you were speaking. I, I, and I take the point, I think there is this kind of split going on. Um, but... Um, is it more acceptable, for example, to, to talk about maybe care of the planet or um, valuing our place in the cosmos um, through some kind of ethical take on things rather than perhaps a spiritual take on things? That the ethical has become more acceptable um, because, you know, people know about climate change or um, people want to value the environment in which we live or in which we can which we can enjoy. Um that's an interesting point. Yes, I, I mean, the ethical is acceptable as a public topic. I mean, animal rights, for example, is an acceptable topic. Not extreme animal rights sort of blowing up researchers or threatening them with car bombs and things, but the more moderate animal rights movement to do with animal welfare in factory farms um, and in laboratories. And these are, after all, supported by mainstream legislation. There are there are laws that restrict and, and what you can do with animals in labs. There is a system of home office licensing and so forth. Um, so these are mainstream debates. So things to do with animal rights, factory farming, organic farming, overfishing, sustainability of food production. These are all mainstream concerns and climate change, ecology, environmental destruction. Um, Yes, so I think that these things, the, these things can be addressed then, but what's being addressed then is really the, the human dimensions or the, the climate change dimensions um, rather than the ecology or the animals themselves. Do you think also that um, we sort of lose something um, other than just our enjoyment or appreciation of things? Do you think um, something is lost um, that perhaps inspired, you know, an Isaac Newton or a... 
um, and even an Albert Einstein more recently. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of um, Einstein's uh, mysticism of, of, you know, of some kind anyway, you know, when he said he was looking at um, the universe, he sensed a greater presence or um, the thing that might have inspired what he tried to study in very, very small part. Um, I just wonder whether, um, some, you know, something is lost um, when there is this sort of sense of be careful. There's a bit of an ethical excuse we can bring in here, but, you know, just hold hold your horses. Yes. Well, I think so. I think in the culture of science, you know, that that people used to be uh, impelled into science out of a kind of curiosity about nature, or they liked tinkering with radio sets as a boy or something, got them into electronics and engineering and things. Um, or they loved animals and plants, they became biologists. But now it's much less, I think, that, that people are motivated in that way. I mean, in most of the world... Most people go into science and engineering because it's seen as a good, respectable career. The country that produces the greatest number of scientists and engineers is India, 1.5 million graduates a year. China, about a million, uh, in science and engineering and mathematics. Now, uh, in Britain, it's about 100,000. But I, I don't believe that most people who are doing that on this industrial scale are doing it because of curiosity. They're doing it because their parents say, you know, science and medicine are good careers where you're more likely to get jobs. Um, so for many people, now science is a large industrial-scale operation rather than just quirky individuals who are drawn to it. Uh, it's now a career. And so I think like any career, people go into it not because of a deep concern for nature. Yeah. Uh, just like, you know, some lawyers go into law because they're deeply concerned with justice, but a lot go into it because it's a regular job and quite well paid. So you wonder whether something has been lost, not just in terms of the science, but also in terms of what you might call the education of people's souls. I mean, it makes me think about the old curriculum from the Renaissance, you know, the, um, there was the, the trillium, the three subjects you learned. And I think in the quadrium, there was, uh, astronomy was part of that because, um, there was the sense that somehow to um, to gaze out into the outer world was also to, in some sense, pay attention to your inner world. There was a kind of reflection between the two. And I suppose that um, that's partly about getting some sense of uh, knowing your place, um, about how there are, um, you know, forces um, that operate in the world of which were a sort of small reflection or they somehow mirror um, something that goes on for ourselves. Sometimes the analogy of the wave being part of the sea is used, that kind yes. of idea. Um, but there was something much more, not just, not just spiritual in the sense of uh, enjoying the aesthetic of it, but something about attuning yourself, as it were, to the world in which we live. Um, and I guess that that side of it gets a bit lost as well. Oh, I think it's been quite lost, because I think what happened really after the 17th century, when there was this split between science and religion, science with a mechanistic view of nature, um, it's just impersonal forces, unconscious matter, no meaning, no purpose. Uh, that's the realm of science. It gets the universe, the human body, nature, uh, the weather, everything like that. Whereas religion got subjectivity, uh, the inner life, ethics, sense of individual human purpose, and maybe collective purpose and ethics, and humans' relationship to God and angels. But that was separated off from nature, because science got nature, and religion got 
ethics, spirituality, but separated off. Whereas before, um, before that split happened, people didn't see a split in that way. I mean, as you say, that the the heavens were considered to be full of the presence of God. God was omnipresent and therefore filled the sky. Um, the stars were intelligent beings, and what happened in the heavens influenced the earth through what's now astrology. But astrology wasn't split off from astronomy as it now is, where astrology gives meaning to things on earth in relation to the heavens, but isn't very f- rooted in observational astronomy, where astronomy gives you facts but no meaning. I think this runs through the whole of the modern scientific endeavour and actually underlies what we've been talking about, because when people want to present science in a way that attracts people, they have to do it in a way that gives a sense of wonder or meaning connection, rather than official science, which is mechanistic and materialistic, which gives a sense of just facts that are related through mathematical laws um, and have no meaning uh, in the bigger picture other than in relation to each other. Nothing to do with human consciousness except we're smart enough to figure it out. Um, and it's this, it's this great split. I wonder whether perhaps then science fiction is more positioned to, to try and heal this division rather than the popular science. I mean, again, thinking of this film Interstellar, you know, there was, um, in a strange sort of way, gravity was like love in the film. Um, you know, so that the, the, in the scientific mode, um, the the explorers, the astronauts, were, were drawn, uh, propelled through um, the galaxy by gravity and by the strange effects of gravity. But there's also a lot of discussion about um, how love, too, transcends dimensions and can make links across space and time. And that, too, draws us. And it felt a bit like Dante, you know, the idea of, of love that moves the heavens. And there was also um, this discussion of these beings that lived outside time. And, of course, in spiritual traditions, to live outside time is to live eternally. Um, and there was a sort of filmic depiction of what could have been taken as a, of, to be angels. Um, mm. Now, you know, th- this it was a great piece of imagination and there was and the use of colour and music and everything, but I did genuinely come out of the film not so much thinking, you know, could this really happen, but almost like I'd been invited to, in the same way the film was rather expansive and long and big, um, was to, to maybe invited to, to rethink again, you know, how I might engage with reality and uh, whether there was, you know, more things in heaven and earth uh, than, than could be dreamt by what's normally taken to be, you know, people going yes. to the stars and travelling in spaceships. Well, I agree. I mean, the reality can be all too banal. It's a matter of trajectories and, you know, data sent back. And, I mean, it tells us something about planets and, and stuff It's worth knowing. But it's nothing like this imaginative archetypal journey that you get in science fiction. I mean, after all, a lot of science fiction films, the Star Wars type of thing, the scriptwriters were influenced by mythology, and Joseph Campbell was one of the people that they were aware of, and, and they were aware of these deep archetypal themes. And I think they were aware of them partly out of a personal interest, but also because if you touch on deep archetypal themes that touch on things like the hero's journey, fall and redemption, you know, salvation in the cosmos, and so forth, and the greater purpose, then you appeal to people at a much deeper level than if you just give them action shots and and nice photography and and a kind of thriller-type plot. It, it, It does appeal, but it's appealing not because of the science, but because scriptwriters are very aware of these deeper and more archetypal themes which the science fiction is 
is a medium for portraying. Yeah, and I guess that what I'm feeling is that this deeper level is not just mere fiction that somehow sweetens the pill of the science or, um, you know, is indulgent, but actually is um, is the deeper underpinnings of the science, if you like. Um, and uh, the, the metaphysics, you might say, behind the physics. Exactly, and it may in part underlie the motivation of some people who go into science in the first place. Those who go into science in the first place partly go through awe or wonder, in my case, through a really strong interest in animals and plants when I was a child, encouraged by my father. So in my case, it was direct connection with living things, and it still is. Um, some people go in because they, they think it'll, their parents think it'll be a good career. Um, some go in because they have had a sense of awe or wonder in the cosmos that's been provoked by science fiction in the first place. It's this, this sort of bigger sense of a spiritual dimension. But when they're actually studying science or actually pursuing it as researchers, that is very definitely, you know, pushed out of the picture. Yeah. Well, maybe next time we go and watch a film or, you know, read some science fiction, I shall not just think, you know, be a bit frustrated about what's been treated in a way as a bit of packaging, but listen to it or watch it as something that's actually telling me something that in a way is as valid as the science itself. Well, in some cases, more valid, because the actual science in most science fiction is pseudoscience rather than real science. I mean, the convention of time warps and in, 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 in space travel in, in, in most space films isn't real science at all. I mean, it's dressed up in scientific-sounding language. But basically, it's using science to provide a, a free reign to the imagination. So watch out for the metaphysics, I guess is what we might say. There's often hidden metaphysics and hidden archetypes in yeah. these films. Well, thanks very much. Thank you.